Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. So hello and welcome to episode 39 of The Market Watch. And instead of Piers Curran, I'm joined by Eddie Donmez, who I'm sure our regular listeners are more than familiar with. But before I get into a conversation with Eddie, huge shout out to the community. Resounding response to the call to arms uh, last week, where we wanted to get people to just give us a little boost up the rankings of the podcast league tables, and you guys responded. So thank you very much. The job is not done. I said the target by year end is 100. We went from 61 to 78, which is a phenomenal effort. If we get a repeat like that, we don't need Christmas. We'll already be there by the end of October. So help us out. Jump on Apple if you're listening on that platform. Uh, rate and review, as I said before, it really helps just get this out to as many people as possible, share the love and, and the education. But um, other than that, let's get straight to it. And so I wanted to swap out uh, peers for Eddie because it's earnings season, it's that time of year, and it's the, really the first unofficial week that big corporate earnings really kick off in the United States. And that means it's the bank stocks that take precedence first. And we had JP Morgan earnings come out earlier this week, they were the kind of the first ones to kick things off. And so by numbers, the largest US bank reported a profit of $11.7 billion, or $3.74 per share, up from $2.92 in the same period last year. Uh, and they basically beat expectations. But when you start breaking down the bank, I thought Eddie would be a great person to speak to to understand that in more detail, in particular, some of the differential between trading activity and, and things like investment banking fees, which have been phenomenal. And I'm sure that's going to lead us down some other discussions. So just from the top then, Eddie, the, the bank earnings that you've seen so far, any first thoughts this week? 
Yeah, so I think it's always useful uh, to look at context uh, in terms of why we look at these bank earnings. So everyone looks at JP Morgan, particularly as a real bellwether uh, for the economy, not just what they're doing as a business, because they're so intertwined in you know, the world's largest economy, the US. And you know, as we know, the Federal Reserve basically lead all other central banks as well as they as they tend to follow. So it's always really, really important to, if you're going to listen to one bank's earnings call or listen to one CEO, it's going to be Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan. Because especially as they kind of reported first, you can learn a lot and you can get kind of get get to grips with what they've reported. It's going to be pretty similar for the other banks. Uh, depending on, you know, of course, which banks they are. So if it's investment banking, kind of the investment banking of JP Morgan, that's going to, of course, be very correlated with Citi, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. So for example, if M&A volumes are through the roof and investment banking fees are through the roof for JP Morgan, chances are it's going to be the same for a, a Goldman Sachs uh, or a Citi, for example. But as we kind of look at JP Morgan, as they kind of re, re, uh, reported first, they've kind of really uh, continued to, you know, actually be relatively positive on the economy. Um, so the bank actually itself delivered really, you know, quite strong results. The economy continues to show growth, uh, despite Delta uh, and the supply chain disruptions that we've, uh, Anthony and I and uh, Piers and I have discussed at length. Um, so they've released another I think uh, 1.5 billion in credit reserves as the kind of economic outlook uh, continues to improve. Um, they've also kind of mentioned uh, about commercial real estate loan growth, kind of seeing some early signs in, in recovery, um, but it's really all about investment banking. Uh, and they actually recorded all time high M&A fee, uh, kind of fees being generated um, so the investment banking, financial advisory divisions uh, of uh, JP Morgan, but as well, uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, Goldman Sachs is really firing on all cylinders. And what I mean by that is M&A, so mergers and acquisitions. So investment banks advising both buyers and sellers on, uh, you know, on both sides of the transaction to you know, acquire or merge with different companies capital markets, so equity capital markets. So when you hear about uh, IPOs, follow on equity offerings, when a company raises more cash through selling their, you know, some new kind of issuance of shares, but also things like debt capital markets. So raising liquidity or the investment bank, JP Morgan, advising and helping uh, their businesses uh, or their clients, so normal corporations, to raise liquidity through the capital markets. Um, so all of that has been really, really strong. Yeah, so I mean, just to give some context here, for JP Morgan specifically, their investment banking fees, because you were saying they were up, they rose 52% year on year to 3.3 billion. So they smashed estimates there. And investment banks are raking in record sums, as you said, fees surging past 100 billion in the first nine months of the year. And a lot of journalists talk about in the media, which I'm sure a lot of listeners read about, is this rush of deal making. So just to strip this back a little bit before we go deep diving, why the rush? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Anne. In 2020, I think it's always important to look at kind of it's almost pre-COVID and now post-COVID. 
So in 2020, uh, as we know, the COVID crisis basically hit in March 2020. Uh, equity markets sold off, financial conditions tightened, and it led to dramatic central bank intervention. Uh, but it, what it also did was through the economy and all the businesses that uh, operate into, in, in the global economy into duress, right? Everyone was scared, you know, regardless of what business you were operating in, even if it was technology, but particularly, let's say, industrials, energy, I guarantee all of the C-suite and all the board members and all employees were like, we don't know what the next week looks like, never mind the next month, never mind the next three months, never mind the next six months, never mind the next fiscal year. We don't know how are we going to get through this week, really. So immediately, all businesses go into kind of survival mode, if you like, and uh, planning. And what this prevents is deal making, potentially. So in uh, March 2020, and really the first kind of half of April 2020, deal making fell off a cliff. So volumes were dramatically lower because companies were really conserving their capital, right? It's all about shoring up your balance sheet so you can pay your employees, you can pay your suppliers, you know, you can operate your business or you can continue uh, to operate. So it was really about that survival mindset. What you're not doing is going, wow, we should go out and make the next best acquisition. You know, think about Instagram or WhatsApp. You're not going to go and spend that excess cash on something quite crazy, particularly in a world that's so, so uncertain. You know, what, what this actually means from a banker's perspective is when they're advising on these transactions also, it's very, very hard to value a business, right? And some of you may be thinking, okay, in March 2020, even the big fangs fell about 30%. You know, the small cap, Russell 2000, whatever you like, fell even more because smaller businesses are more susceptible to, you know, the, the economy, COVID, you know, they're less kind of financially strong. These businesses are cheap, right? Why not? Why, why would that mean deal activity falls off a cliff? It should increase it because you, you could see like uh, targets becoming more affordable and, you know, coming into you know, certain price ranges. But it's very difficult to value a business when, okay, first of all, revenues potentially are shut off completely cash cash flows are shut off completely um so from our you know evaluation perspective it's very very uncertain so when you're advising uh, let's say a buyer what do you pay for a target okay and what's a target worth in that really uncertain environment you know you really don't want to pay for something and use up that cash um and for a seller so if you're being purchased you you, you know you don't want to uh, basically uh, get sold for less than your worth in normal conditions. So, you know, from a seller's perspective, you'll go, okay, I'll ride this out. I'll wait till we know more about COVID and then I'll kind of come to the table. Um, so, you know, the M&A volumes really fell off a cliff. But as we kind of progressed into the second half of 2020, there was a huge amount of, well, there's a huge amount of different drivers. Okay, so we saw interest rates get slashed. Okay, so what does that mean? It means cheap financing, cheap money, cheap debt to basically raise to go out and make acquisitions. Okay, and for the, particularly for those businesses that actually somewhat, I'm doing a quote unquote, benefited um, from, from the pandemic, you know, they were flush with cash, right? And they were like, okay, this is a great time to, you know, snap up some of these targets. Others really maybe were looking at deals 
you know, to do uh, pre-COVID. Uh, and then they got delayed because you don't want to purchase something that you're not very sure that it will survive in the next three or six months. But when the economy started to return and COVID became less scary, and of course, later on in the year, November, we had the vaccine uh, certainty. So we had vaccines, basically. We had uh, the US election uh, and Joe Biden come into power. So all these risks kind of started to subside. So there was a huge amount of pent up demand. Okay. And it's always, well, let's just put it this way. Building a business and is very hard. Organic growth is very hard. So just building your business organically and generating revenues organically is very, very hard. Why do you do M&A? Why do you do deals? It's really to expand your business, right? Maybe new product lines, maybe geographical expansion, okay? Maybe, uh, and a very topical at the moment, it's supply chain consolidation, right? So there's a lot of horizontal, but more importantly, vertical mergers, right? So if you're a, a vaccine producer, if you're a medical supplies producer, if you're a manufacturer, and you've now shifted all of your operations to Asia, right, uh, where it's low cost, and you can benefit from that, and then COVID happens, and freight, race, freight costs uh, kind of quadruple, you know, there's supply chain bottlenecks, and you can't get your input goods, then you can't sell your product. So now you're looking from a kind of growth mindset, okay, what businesses can we acquire domestically to shore up those, let's say, supply chain issues? So particularly in points of stress, like we're seeing right now, you know, you, you really need to be diversified, otherwise you're just not going to sell. So there's a lot of kind of defensive, you know, action going on. There's also a lot of offensive. So think about the major trends that are being you know, that are apparent right now, uh, and COVID made it even more apparent, digitalization, right? Businesses having to come from kind of legacy, and it doesn't matter if you operate in technology, if you operate in industrials, energy, they're all trying, you, you need to be kind of tech savvy and digital, right, in, in most. So there's a, a kind of tech flavor across all different kind of uh, deal areas. Um, so that's a big trend. And this is what, you know, companies are trying to acquire for. Um, it's ESG and things like that. But it's all about, you know, one thing that COVID made very, very apparent for companies was the biggest and the best and the strongest financially, the strongest balance sheets did very well, right? And those that were more vulnerable to these kind of the economy and things like that did less well. So it's really uh, bolt-ons, what can we do to become a bigger, stronger, financially kind of more, uh, you know, sustainable business. So this is really what's driving a lot of the kind of volume from, from last year. And then, you know, it's definitely carried in into this year. So we, I kind of mentioned interest rates. Um, so they got slashed, of course, last year. So this cheap financing is fueling M&A activity. You know, uh, companies are raising debt because it's almost free, right, to then go out and purchase companies. But the other side of that kind of function is equity, right? If you're a business and you've got the S&P 500 at almost all-time highs, the NASDAQ at, you know, very elevated levels, particularly, let's say, if you're a tech company, you've got one lever to pull, which is cheap debt, but you've also got a very elevated share price, Right. So if you're doing an all stock offering, for example, or you're selling some equity to raise some capital to then go out and do a deal, that condition is also very, very favorable for you. So all of these different different things are fueling this activity, as well as the kind of uh, the strong economy we've really had 
you know really this year up until now kind of thing so so one thing i was thinking as you were you were talking through that was that a lot of that activity seems spurred on then by this pent-up demand as you as you said on the initial onset so it's kind of been a game of two halves so to speak i'm just wondering what the third quarter of this game looks like because rates are going up uh let's say vaccination efficacy is potentially decreasing there's there's some sensitivity at the moment around other subjects that are increasing whether geopolitics or whether foreign shores in china and the property situation with evergrande surely then this activity cannot continue in this direction forever and i'm just asking the question i guess about going further forward then surely this needs to moderate back it's almost like the pen the, the environment now that's pretty crazy in the m a space seems like the only way is down from here and that because the economy started to show signs of it's already peaked policies are now tightening surely the the party's over it's not completely the, the party's not finished but i just wonder what that means then because obviously everyone's asking the question about equity you know if i'm looking at equity indices valuation at these levels we're punching at all-time high still pretty much we've had some pullback recently um but I just wonder with the earnings, when we look at them in a more broad sense with the future outlook for, for corporates, um, potentially then yeah, a bit of a recalibration back to a degree of normality. It's almost like the GDP numbers we were seeing in the pandemic, monster declines, super recoveries, and now we're kind of somewhere in the middle and it feels like earnings have kind of lagged that slightly and now it'd be interesting to see where we go from here. Yeah, so... Yeah, on top of, I think what you were, well, you sounded like a UK journalist talking about the housing market about to crash there, <laughs> but you can, I think I know what report you're talking about in terms of Goldman Sachs revising down, for example, their GDP growth figures for next year, kind of decelerating from this kind of base effect that we've had this year and this pent up demand. I think really, um, I think the party will continue, right? I think if you think about interest rates and generally financial conditions. Sure, we're talking about tapering starting in November, ending being brought forward in the middle of the year. So yields are on the kind of upward trajectory, if you like, which makes funding costs higher. You know, that's, that's a fact. It would make raising debt to then go and do these deals more expensive. Okay, if we see tapering uh, and more importantly, interest rate hikes being moved forward from 23 to maybe next year, and that hits stocks, right? So equity markets, then, you know, of course, that would essentially derail the kind of feel good factor. It hits generally wealth. Um, and then again, it could have knock on effects, let's say into the housing market and, you know, all those different assets. So there's definitely a risk, of course, as always, that um, these kind of series of events could potentially derail or slow down uh, activity. However, we're talking about almost the, the loosest financial conditions that we've ever had, right? And a 25 basis point hike in 2023 is most likely not going to derail this activity. Of course, there's, you know, some supply chain issues that we're kind of battling with. There's, you know, the economy potentially, uh, and we talk about stagflation, it's more of a deceleration from a 6% growth rate to a 4% growth rate, which is still above trend growth. Okay, so uh, the economy is decelerating, but it's not, you know, we're not going into a recession. 
Okay, so that environment still, you know, relatively uh, strong. If you think about the kind of uh, logistics as well of the activity with COVID, you know, we've got vaccines now, we've got the Merck pill potentially as a kind of double punch, things like that. You know, uh, I've been on a plane in the last two weeks. You know, one of the things that, you know, commentators mentioned about, say, uh, March 2020 deal activity when COVID hit was, oh, you know, you can't go and in inspect that business. You can't do your due diligence, right? You can't go and see that factory. You can't go and meet with the founders and shake their hands and look them in the eye to see if they're trustworthy. You can't do the legal due diligence. You can't go and uh, spend time with the software developers and check the code to make sure it's airtight. Um, so all these things, but that didn't derail it because we found this beautiful technology called Zoom and actually uh, it didn't matter too much. But cross-border M&A is going to you know, come roaring back. Um, so we've seen kind of elements of this uh, kind of coming through in the sense of, you know, travels coming back, you know, the high frequency data is improving in terms of, you know, flying around. So cross-border M&A took a massive hit last year and it's been kind of the slowest to rebound. Um, but now, you know, flight flights are, are going on. Um, so that cross-border cross M&A um, could be the next tailwind behind these deals. So uh, I believe that this party will continue um, I think what the pandemic's exposed is that, you know, uh, M&A and a growth mindset will pay you back kind of dividends in times of, of, of big stress. Um, so I think companies will continue to trend towards things like digitalization and the themes that were, I kind of were aforementioned. Okay. So at the moment, we've talked about participants such as investment banks specifically, but also private equity firms. But I wanted to touch on hedge funds because I know you've mentioned to me before about how, you know, there's a very core element to human behavior, which is a very powerful emotion called jealousy. <laughs> and I'm sure hedge funds are looking at this thinking, how do I get a slice of this pie? And I, know, I remember you talking to me about this before and about how they've kind of entered the fray. So what's the deal with the hedge fund side? How are they involved in this, in this space? Yeah, so these investment banking fees are, you know, are going through the roof. They're advising strategic buyers. So imagine an Asda buying a Morrison's. They're advising private equity firms. So a KKR acquiring a Medline, for example. Um, so that's, you know, private equity are very much uh, a core element of these volumes and general deal volumes. I think they make up about, they've made up about 30% of the deal activity this year. You can add SPACs into that. Uh, kind of mix, but private equity are definitely there. There's about or a rumored number of about four trillion in some something called dry powder that they've got at their disposal. Okay, so private equity firms are very very active and have been since uh, the March 2020 um, kind of pandemic, deploying capital in those distressed assets. Uh, those kind of rebound stories, but also investing, particularly in technology and software, um, you know, planning for the future. So private equity have a lot of dry powder to, they've deployed, but they've got a whole lot more to deploy. So their returns have been very, very good. And this is leading to a bit of jealousy. Okay, so uh, generally, what kind of firms do private equity firms invest in? It's kind of in the name as a clue. 
generally private businesses, okay? Um, so they're providing capital and making investments in these private businesses that they will then make operational improvements potentially in or not do anything and sell at a higher multiple. So they're looking to generate a return by investing in a private company and then selling it to either a strategic buyer or another PE firm, uh, essentially. So they've been doing very, very well um, over the last five years. Their returns as a kind of industry have been double that of the hedge fund returns. Okay. So hedge funds, of course, they can, they mainly, uh, you, I think you can say that, invest in things like public equity. So liquid kind of assets, private equity generally are investing in more, uh, less liquid, more illiquid type assets, right? Private businesses where they, these companies are not listed on an exchange, just like you, if you were to type in, you know, Apple share price, you could buy and sell Apple stock, right? That doesn't happen for private businesses, right? There's uh, a buyer, like a private equity firm, they'll, you know, put in some capital and the general kind of holding period or investment period will be something like five to seven years, five to 10 years, seven to even up to things like 20 years. Okay. So there's somewhat of a long, you know, time horizon there, but generally the returns have been very, very good. So now we've got a bit of competition with hedge funds entering the kind of private capital space. And this private capital space has seen a lot of interest from even the big investment banks setting up private capital units, you know, asset management units. And this uh, private capital uh, kind of uh, industry is worth about seven trillion now. So it's it's still relatively small in terms of the kind of overall market, but it's growing and it's growing quickly. And I think Morgan Stanley had a 2023 estimate that it's going to double or, you know, from, from 7 trillion. So there's, it's, it's growing um, and there's a lot of returns to be made. So hedge funds are now competing with these private equity firms for these really, really attractive targets. Okay. And kind of, kind of what we mentioned um, just kind of in the intro was investment banks, IPO activity and equity capital markets activity has been also very strong. So uh, IPO volumes have been very, very healthy. Um, there's been a huge amount of interest because of the IPO pops referring to the kind of performance on the day or the weeks following an IPO. So there's been some great kind of pops on IPO day. Um, but what this means for hedge funds is it's quite hard to get an allocation to an IPO, right? There's a whole book building process and the investment banks are, you know, allocating capital to, you know, pension funds, asset managers, hedge funds, and these hedge funds, you know, if they do get an allocation, great, but maybe they're investing post IPO, maybe on the first day, potentially after a five, 10, 15% pop, for example. So what they're thinking is, okay, how can we kind of arb this? and get in before this IPO, you know, this company goes through the Series C and then goes to an IPO. Okay, they're like, okay, who does that? Well, private equity. And these private equity firms are, of course, investing kind of pre-IPO. So these hedge funds are now investing, and there's been a record kind of investment of hedge funds investing in private equity and private capital, kind of away from the public equities. Um, of course, this is kind of raising some alarm, uh, alarm bells just because hedge funds are relatively liquid and they invest in liquid things. I'm sure there's a lockup period and investors can redeem their money. Um, however, it's a lot shorter than that of a private equity kind of redemption period, right? Uh, five to seven years or 10 years is quite a long time. 
So if you've got these hedge funds investing in illiquid private assets that have a long time horizon, there's somewhat of a liquidity mismatch there. So it could be a kind of a trend uh, that we all should watch. But there's a huge amount of competition for quality assets. And this is what's driving M&A activity. This is what's driving PE deal making. And now the hedge funds are kind of entering the party, looking for those really, really attractive private uh, assets to get their hands on before that pre you know that uh, that IPO pop, so they can kind of capture more more alpha uh, and kind of uh, grab some more of those kind of private equity gains. Cool. Well, look, super interesting times, and you know, there's a there's a lot to digest there uh, that you just offloaded. So, so what I'd say to uh, anyone listening is that just go, just jump to amplifyme.com jump on the hub and you'll be able to reach out to me and Eddie directly. Um, so look, we'll look to, to wrap it up there. The other thing, thank you, Eddie, for, for your time today. But the other thing I was, I was going to add in, um, even if you're a new listener or you listen every week, uh, if the latter, thank you. But just give you a heads up that we're going to start on the same podcast channel, this channel, a career hack series that will accompany then these just general weekly chats that I have with the team that are more kind of market specific. And we're going to drop those episodes on a Wednesday. And it's going to be with our head of China division, Zhao, who's kind of the expert who oversees a lot of our stuff about interviews, assessment centers, and group exercises, tips, tricks, hacks, how to perform better at those. So stay tuned for that. We'll drop the first one on Wednesday. Uh, otherwise it'll be back probably me and Piers next week so just to say thank you once again for those who uh, rated and reviewed the podcast on Apple please again we're on 78 at times of recording push us up let's get to 100 and yeah everyone stay safe have a great weekend thank you Eddie and uh, catch you Done. next time take care If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.